please turn in your Bibles with me to our scripture reading today in Colossians 4, 7 to 18. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received these instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and those for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Acrippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, it's good to see you guys. For those of you who don't know me, or if you're visiting, first time, first few times, my name is Andrew. I serve here as the music and song leader, but today I have the privilege of finishing out chapter four of Colossians the passage, the book um, that we've been walking through for the last several months. So um, you'll have to excuse me, I'm suffering from some allergies. And uh, so I'm going to try to keep the coughing to a minimum, but I did bring cough drops. So. so today we're going to look at Colossians 4, 7 through 18. And the main point is that a Christian's fellowship and unity with other believers is made possible by the love of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we would be mature and fully assured in all the will of God. This is what we see in the last bit of chapter 4, and it aligns with what we've seen in the rest of the book. So I've broken this passage up uh, kind of into three sections. So we want to look at Paul's partners in ministry. He lists a lot of them here. And then we want to look at their prayer and their purpose in their ministry. And then third, we want to meditate on the idea that this kind of fellowship, this kind of unity is only possible through Christ sustained by God's grace. So we're going to look at the partners, the prayer and the purpose, and then the fellowship made possible. I tried to get another P in there. I think if I had done that, I would have gotten an honorary degree from some Baptist seminary, but not today. So it can kind of be tempting, I think, to skip over a passage like this, the final greetings and salutations, because it, it seems to be mostly formalities. Paul is signing off. He's already said everything that he needs to say. We've already gotten the beautiful Christ hymn, right? He's the image of the invisible God, firstborn of creation. But I don't think we should skip over it. I think we can actually deduce some biblical instruction and principles for Christian fellowship and unity from this last section. So some of it is explicit. We do have a couple of explicit commands, and some of them um, are implicit, right? They're implied. So in other words, we're going to have to take a look at the text closely 
And pay attention to the language that Paul uses in order to really understand the sort of fellowship and unity um, that's being portrayed here. So again, the main point is that I want us to see that true Christian fellowship and unity with each other and the church at large is, is only possible through the love of God that he shows us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the end goal of that for Paul, for the Colossian church, was that they would be mature and fully assured in their faith. So there are some key takeaways for us, um, but I do want to point out, I I don't think we're going to be relearning the concept of fellowship and unity today. It's not as though this is going to be um, a totally new concept, uh, a new way of, of being unified with one another, but it's more of a reforming of our thinking. Um, a reframing of our thinking. Uh, by way of analogy, so the, the very first time that I was promoted to manager actually went really, really poorly because uh, it was one of those classic, hey, you're really good at your job, you, or let's promote you, and you can help other people be good at their job. I did not realize that being a manager and a leader of people was a lot more than just being technically competent at your job. Uh, and so I had to learn that, and I had a very patient boss who taught me But it wasn't like I had to relearn the concept of being a manager, um, but I had to reframe and reform my understanding, my thinking. And so I think this is a good approach to Scripture. We want to let it tell us what it means, to let it reform and reframe our thinking. Uh, If you've spent any time around me, one of my favorite questions to ask is, by what standard? Every kid on the playground knows this intrinsically, the importance of this question. Every kid at the dinner table knows the importance of this question. Hey, Dad, can I get down? Can I be done? No. Eat more of your food. How much? By what standard? What are are we measuring by, Dad? We're doing cubic inches. They get really, really technical at that point. But the point is, by what standard is important? What are we measuring by? So in this passage, the standard is going to be God's word in Paul's final instructions to the Colossian church, and we'll be evaluating and reforming our understanding of biblical fellowship and unity by that lens. So let's jump into the first section here, Paul's partners in ministry. So this greeting slash closing section functions a bit like a group photo that Paul's sending to the church in Colossae. He's closing the letter with some final instructions and greetings, and he includes this sort of, um, this list of names, this group photo of several people in his sphere of ministry. Some are with him, some are far apart from him, but he is involved in their lives, and they are involved in his lives. So first, let's tie that, this group photo, to the entire theme of the book. Um, Why is he giving all these final instructions? Well, we know that Paul essentially wrote Colossians uh, because he had heard about the false teaching that was being spread through the church. Um, Epaphras had come and told him that, and his goal was to encourage their hearts and to remind them of his love for the church while he was in prison, and that they would reach maturity in Christ through the knowledge of God, which would lead to the full assurance of the will of God. So his goal was to encourage them and combat this false teaching so that they would stand mature and fully assured. So this final greeting is sort of like a bow on top of all that. It reminds the church that they're not alone in this fight, and it reinforces what's already been taught. So We'll start in the passage by looking at some of the people that Paul mentions, and this isn't just a historical exercise, but we want to see what what do they mean to Paul? How do they relate to Paul, and um, how do they impact the local church there? Is there any takeaway there for us? So first up is, is Tychicus, right? He had the job of delivering the letter to the Colossian church along with Onesimus. 
So in those days, letter carriers like Tychicus and Onesimus were actually expected to interpret parts of the letter that are left vague, and also to give an update on the author, which is Paul. So Paul had been ministering in Jerusalem with Tychicus, and his goal was uniting the Jewish church in Jerusalem with the Gentile church outside of Palestine. And so the fact that Tychicus was entrusted with this letter, and also likely the letter of Philemon and Ephesians, shows that Paul trusted him and valued his character. And he also had a bit of a job to do. He, you know, parts of that in verses 7 through 9, he says, he'll tell you what's happening here. He'll tell you about my situation. Paul doesn't really go into a lot of detail. We know he's in prison, um, but the letter carriers are actually supposed to deliver a little bit more of that. We'll talk about more uh, of Tychicus in the next section, but for now, let's move on to Onesimus. So he he was the guy who went from useless to useful. Um, So he had originally run away from Philemon, if you've read that letter. And Philemon was a leader in the Colossians church. Um, And so Onesimus had actually been stealing from him. He was a servant. He had stolen from him, and then he got out of town. He ran away to Rome where he met Paul, and he became a Christian. Now he's being sent back to Colossae. This is an example of someone who's been forgiven of their sins and is now fully participating in ministry. Paul urges Philemon to forgive Onesimus and then transfer any debt that he had owed over to Paul. He urges to consider him more than just a bondservant, but actually a brother. Again, this kind of unity in Christ that they share changes their relationship. And this type of forgiveness is made possible only because Paul and Philemon's sins were forgiven by God in Christ first. So Philemon's encouraged to reform and reframe his disposition towards his former servant, and we're basically told the same thing for those who sin against us. As you have been forgiven, so you must also forgive. We see the gospel reforming relationships, and Paul expected the church uh, in Colossae to uh, receive Onesimus and to welcome him. So next up in that group photo is Aristarchus. He's bearing Paul's burdens with him in prison. Um, we know that Aristarchus was present um, for, during Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Um, we remember in Acts, he was actually one of those guys that was seized by the mob when they recognized that he was one of Paul's friends. And he later followed Paul to Jerusalem and Rome. He calls Paul uh, Aristarchus, Paul calls Aristarchus uh, a fellow prisoner. The Greek word there, akmalitos, uh, is, is, is a, a war term. It means one who's caught with a spear, um, held captive typically referred to people who were caught in battle um, by the enemy. And Paul likely refers to him like this because he was with Paul and kept in fellowship with him while he was in prison. Some of the commentators kind of go back and forth on whether or not he was actually in prison. I don't think it's important to what we're seeing here, though. The important thing is that he didn't abandon Paul. He was faithful, and he stayed with him. So like Tychicus, this kind of faithfulness that we see is endearing and encouraging to Paul. And that kind of fellowship ought to be encouraging to us as well. I think one thing we can remember with examples like this are brothers or sisters here that bear our burdens well. These are people who walk through dark and difficult seasons with us. They don't despise us or resent you for the burden that they're sharing. The fellowship is pure. And this can only be held onto by a person who is holding fast to their confession of faith. It's not that people can't be friends outside the gospel. I don't think that's the point. But this type of enduring unity through imprisonment and hardship is really only possible through Christ. Then there's Mark, uh, Mark <clears throat> or John Mark, the same one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. There's a similar theme here with Mark. Uh, there's a theme of forgiveness and restoration, same as with Onesimus. 
Mark had abandoned Paul and Barnabas on their very first uh, missionary journey in Acts, back in chapter 13, and he went back to Jerusalem, but now he's a changed man. He was probably influenced by the uh, ministry of Peter, and by the time Philemon is written, Mark is described as being a fellow worker. So remember, he had abandoned Paul. Paul was frustrated with him, said, you can't come with me and Barnabas on this mission, and now he's actually sending him back and saying, you need to welcome him. Much like Onesimus, there's no mention of judgment for past sins. Again, this kind of forgiveness and fellowship can only come from a people who have had their own sins forgiven by Jesus Christ. Then comes Justice, uh, Jesus, who was called Justice, and we know that he was a man of strong commitment. Um, Paul describes Justice as one of the only Jews or men of the circumcision, Jewish Christian, uh, who's his partner in ministry. And we know from 2 Corinthians and Acts that a lot of the times the people who were opposing Paul were actually the Jewish Christians. Um, they were the most critical of him, uh, which discouraged Paul. So Justice, Mark, and Aristarchus are the only men of the circumcision or Jewish Christians who are actually an encouragement or comfort to Paul. These fellow uh, men are called fellow workers for the kingdom, and the expectation is that the church recognizes them as such. There's actually a legal term for this called reciprocity. Uh, This is where one local body of uh, authority, like the state of Texas, recognizes another state's authority, like Arkansas. So in that example, which is real, uh, if a Texas attorney wants to, and he's licensed, he can actually file a claim in an Arkansas court and try a case there. Arkansas recognizes uh, Texas court's authority. We see a similar thing going on here. These men's authority and influence are recognized by Paul in the church in Rome, and the expectation is that it transfers over to the Colossian church. The analogy breaks down if you think about it too hard, I think, but the idea is that someone preaching the death and resurrection of Jesus and faithfully ministering will always be welcome at a like-minded church. We obviously have denominal uh, differences that we exercise some prudence over, right? You're probably never going to see a team of ribbon dancers up here to encourage us in our singing. But we try to live this out at Christ's Redeemer by regularly praying for other churches. We support our gospel partners. We actually visit them, and they visit us sometimes. The church recognizes the ministry of other believers and should love to validate it. Now we're going to get to Epaphras, uh, who is most likely the pastor there at the local church. So again, we're working through that group photo that Paul is sending to the church in his letter. So Epaphras had traveled to Rome to tell Paul about the heresy in the first place, and Paul affirms him as a fellow servant of Christ. He highlights his commitment. He says that he's been hard at work for the churches in that area. He had first mentioned him back in chapter 1, and it's evident that he's a faithful ministry of the church, not just because he spent time there and it was serving, uh, but because Paul himself says, I'm encouraged by the love that the church in Colossae has for the saints. And I also give thanks to God for your faith in and of itself. So the work that um, Epaphras was doing in Colossium was bearing fruit. Have you ever known someone who you could tell was passionate about something simply by the way others spoke about him? You can always tell a good husband by the way his wife talks about him, particularly when he's not there. If she gives a good report and clearly admires him, you may not know much about him, but you know he's not asleep at the wheel. We don't know Epaphras' complete story here, but we know he wasn't asleep at the wheel when it came to ministering and teaching the gospel message. This was clearly encouraging to Paul, and it should be encouraging to us. We're told that Epaphras struggled in his prayers for the Colossian church, 
and that they would stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. We'll get into more on this in a few minutes here. Uh, that's really more in the purpose section. Right now, we're still talking about the partners in ministry in this group photo. So next, we come to Luke, the same one who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke was a constant companion of Paul in his ministry, though he was never formally a minister. And I, I think there's one thing we could take away from this. Um, this can be an encouragement to those of us who hold secular work while serving in the church. God has blessed us with both the means of provision, work and income, and also the opportunity to bless the church and by extension be blessed ourselves. This is a big blessing. Luke was a physician. He wasn't primarily a minister, but that didn't stop him from serving. Remember, um, as you consider these gospel partners of Paul, the Holy Spirit is bringing mind to examples of people like this in your life so that you can give thanks. Or perhaps he's convicting you to be more intentional about your ministry. Remember, many of these people are not full-time ministers. Luke's a good example. I'm not a full-time minister either. I have a marketing job. It's very possible, and I think it's a very big blessing to have the opportunity to minister to the church while enjoying the benefits of gainful employment. I view both of those as blessings from the Lord. And it doesn't have to be something huge. Consider this next person, Nympha. We don't know a lot about her, but we know that she's had some influence because she's hosting a church in her home. Hospitality makes the home come alive. When it's done well, it's truly transformative. Small things like hosting gospel community in your house when done under the banner of Jesus Christ is life-giving. It's transformative. It becomes a vessel for the gospel conversation and fellowship that encourages so much. It becomes a vessel for confession and burden-bearing, laughter and tears, encouragement and affirmation, admonition, and difficult conversations. I've been the recipient of this kind of hospitality, and it really is encouraging. The last face we come to in this group photo is Demas. He had kind of a sad future, right? He started out strong with them, but as we get to 2 Timothy, uh, we see that he actually abandoned Paul, pursues the pleasures of the world, and flees to Thessalonica. So not everybody in this group photo is there. Um, we can probably relate, right? If you take any given snapshot from a high school yearbook, even from people who maybe helped plant a church or move to a new city with you, 10 years later, 20 years later, some of those people are still there. Some of them moved on. Some of them have given up. And we see the same thing here. But one important theme to take away from hearing about these different men and women helping Paul is that Paul doesn't minister alone. Proverbs 27 says that iron sharpens iron, and Ecclesiastes 4 takes it a step further. It says the one who goes it alone is actually to be pitied. Woe to him if he falls and there's no one there to help him up. Who will keep him warm in the bitter cold if he lies down by himself? And who will defend him if he's overpowered? A cord of three strands is not equally broken, easily broken. We're not meant to do ministry alone, but together. So now that we've looked at this kind of group photo that Paul gives of the people he's greeting, the people he's with currently, let's examine their purpose and their prayer for ministry. We'll be mostly looking at the example of Tychicus and Epaphras. So this next question that I have for us is, why does Paul include this in the letter to the Colossian church? Are we supposed to learn anything from it? And the last question, does the advent of Christ crucified and resurrected impact this at all? Does, does Christ's coming actually change any of this? Because if it doesn't, I could actually mail this sermon off to a mosque or a synagogue, and it'd be a big hit, because this next part is just practical wisdom on doing group life together. But that's not the case. We're actually people brought together by the peace secured by Christ himself. It's the overflow of God's love that enables us to have this kind of unity and fellowship that Paul's talking about. 
So first, we, we just saw that ministry doesn't happen in a vacuum, and that the normal means for, of encouragement for a church is the people who are daily, daily ministering the Word. We saw both formal and informal examples of this. We examined the group photo from Paul, and we saw the ministry of elders and lay people alike. So now, as we get into this next section, right, the prayer and the purpose, let's examine the next two things that we see. Um, so one, we see that hearts are supposed to be encouraged. Um, we see this in verse 8. Hearts are supposed to be encouraged by Paul's gospel fellowship and unity. And then we're supposed to be, the church is expected to be mature and fully assured in all the will of God, which I would argue can only be done if anchored to Christ on the cross. That's in verse 12. So heart encouragement and maturity and assurance. Let's look at heart encouragement first. So going back to Tychicus in verse 7, recall he was one of the letter delivery boys with Onesimus and a fellow minister with Paul. So Tychicus is supposed to tell the Colossian church about Paul's situation, which is he's in prison, and the state of the local church. But why would knowing that Paul was in prison actually be encouraging? Well, back in verse 3 and 4, there's a little bit more context. So he says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Another way of translating this verse, though, uh, verse 3 is viewing it as a setup or a transition into verse 4, kind of like a dependent clause. So because I am in prison, I'm going to make the gospel clear, which is how I ought to speak. So in a very real sense, Paul doesn't in, uh, view his imprisonment here as a necessary evil to tolerate, but it seems to be a springboard for his gospel ministry. This is why he asks for continual prayer, and he reminds the Colossians that he suffers for them and for the gospel. He doesn't actually ask to be released or relieved from his imprisonment, but only that the gospel would continue to go forth. We need to be careful not to look at a passage like this and think, okay, if, if Paul can endure prison, then I can endure whatever my bad situation is. It is true. We can learn to be content in every season. We can imitate Paul by saying that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Yes and amen. But I think the important theme here is that Paul views this as a part of his ministry. He acts like it's a feature, not a bug. His ministry is marked by suffering and imprisonment, but the Lord still worked through him. And Paul saw that as a sovereign delegation, a task assigned by God himself, and he was honored to carry that out. Brings to mind, uh, at least for me, 2 Timothy 2.9, remember Christ Jesus who rose from the dead, for which I'm in chains like a criminal? Some of us might remember uh, Pastor Brian Davis from Risen Christ Fellowship. He preached on that here several years ago. One of our uh, gospel partner church plants in Philadelphia, back when we were meeting on Sunday nights. But back to the passage, the overall purpose of the thing was to encourage the hearts of the Colossian church, and that meant that they needed to be able to see clearly enough to actually be encouraged. Perhaps their perspective needed to be reformed, and perhaps ours does too. We can draw some parallels to this passage and think of the toil of the ministry of our elders and deacons, our small group leaders, our teachers who are working hard to encourage our hearts through gospel teaching and living. Are we actually thanking God for their ministry? Are we letting our hearts be encouraged by the fruits of their labors? I think it casts a little bit of a different light, doesn't it? It puts a little responsibility on the receivers of the ministry to not neglect to pray for their leaders and their teachers. And it also prompts us to be encouraged by their work 
Nothing about the Christian life is passive. This is another way to let Scripture continually reform and transform our mind by changing the way we understand God's church and the worker that he's given to us for our joy that we hear from 2 Corinthians 1.24. It's in the same way that Paul wanted the church to receive Tychicus. We receive our guest speakers, our gospel partners at CRC with gladness. Even if we don't really know them, we know their ministry, and we trust those who trust them. And by way of encouragement, uh, we are encouraged. By way of their ministry, we're encouraged. Let me tell you a very quick story about uh, one of our gospel partners. So we were down in Austin a few weeks ago, me, Tom Weichel, and Andrew Cummings. This was a, a conference held by Nine Marks, which is a, an organization we're a part of basically on elder training and church training. And in the lobby, I got to talking with this church that was hosting it. Their director of music and liturgy is a guy named Eric. He had given a talk on the importance of liturgy, of theological correctness in your order of worship. Uh, Their services look very similar to ours. It was really encouraging. So I was just telling him, hey man, I appreciate that. You know, this was a good reminder. Um, You know, we, we do the same thing at our church, talked about music for a little bit. And then as we're walking out of the lobby, he goes, hey, uh, you know, know, I've been here for a few years. I really appreciate that. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Hey, where'd you come from, by the way? Oh, I was at a church plant in Philadelphia. Okay. And then he looks at my name tag. He goes, hang on. Are are you? I said, yeah, we we used to be in Mago Day. What was your church? He's like, it was Risen Christ Fellowship. This was the guy from Brian Davis's church. He was the guy ministering with them and doing music. This guy's energy level went from a 4 to an 11. This guy was so happy to see me. We were just sharing just kind of some fellowship, some unity in being aligned with our theology of music and encouraging the church through liturgy. And then it just got cranked up by about 10 levels because he remembered the encouragement that we were. He actually took out his phone immediately and he took a picture of all three of us and he sent it over to Brian Davis who immediately greeted us. That was really encouraging. I've actually never met that guy. I've never been to that church. Brian Davis has been here a couple times and he's preached. I, I don't actually know that church very well, but we've been supporting them and praying to them for years, even though Brian Davis has now moved on to a different ministry. That was so encouraging to see the fruit of our labor, of the money that we've given, the times that we've hosted them, the times that we prayed for them, to see that on somebody's actual face, how encouraged they were by what we were doing all the way over here. Brothers and sisters, that was encouraging to me. I don't really get easily excited, but that was really, that was really encouraging. So let's look at the next section here, um, the next commandment with Epaphras. His example um, and his desire was that the church would be mature and, and fully assured. So we're told that Epaphras prayed for the Colossian church continually and also that he wanted them to stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So he's described as struggling on their behalf in prayer, and the original word is actually closer to agonizing in prayer. It's the same word um, that describes the way Jesus prayed in Gethsemane from Luke. So this kind of struggle, this toil in prayer, is for the good of the church. We should also consider Epaphras' prayer as a ministry to the church. This is another area where I think our attitudes, at least mine, can use some reforming. You know, last week we talked about continuing steadfastly in prayer, and Epaphras is a good example of living that out, isn't he? How often do we actually view our prayer 
as a ministry. Do we often think of prayer as a personal connection with God, that it's just me and him, it's a to-do list for my personal holiness and my spiritual life? When we tell someone we pray for them, it's not just an empty promise of good vibes, right? People talk about thoughts and prayers being a meaningless gesture, but for the Christian who's actually following God's word and understands that it's a powerful tool to encourage the church, our prayer is actually a very real part of our ministry. Consider how this brother, Eric, from Risen Christ Fellowship in Philadelphia, was encouraged just because we've been praying for him for so many years. We should pray for our local church. We should pray for the church at large, our city, and our gospel partners. Our pastoral prayer element in the liturgy here is actually uh, one of the ways we attempt to be faithful to that. The gathering guide, you'll notice in small italic font, says it's in a time of extended uh, intercessory prayer. So we're saying one of two things here. First, we're saying that we believe corporate prayer for the church is important. It's not just a private activity, but it's a way that we worship together. And our corporate prayer night is also an extension of this. But number two, we believe that the elders of the church have a unique pastoral responsibility to intercede for the body of Christ. And this is a part of their ministry to the church. So prayer is part of our ministry to the church, whether you're an elder or not. So back to the purpose of Epaphras' prayer, that the church would be able to stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God. I love that we introduced that song, uh, There Is One Gospel. I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ that kept ringing out as I was preparing this message. First, this should remind us of the language back in chapter 1, where Paul says he wants the church to be presented as mature in Christ. There's an emphasis on spiritual growth and maturity from Paul and Epaphras both. And the idea of being fully assured should echo the overall tone of Colossians. Paul wants the church to remember the teachings of Christ, their identity in him. He wants them to put off the old self, to abandon false teachers in order that they can be fully assured of their faith in the will of God. So this last part, in the will of God, is it's kind of like another way of saying the church needs to understand God's word and its teaching. Um, so when we know the word and we obey God's word, we can be confident that we are in the will of God. And we should pray that he keeps increasing our spiritual wisdom and our understanding. So in the will of God is not a spiritual abstract concept like where God wants you to live or work or eat or go to school or anything like that. It's, it's actually just knowing the normal study of the word uh, that reveals his will for us in our lives, that we love the Lord our God and we follow his commandments. If we're doing that, then we can have assurance that we are in the will of God. So as we've considered Paul's partners in ministry and examined what their purpose and their prayer was, we can see that this team effort of ministry has the end goal of encouraging our hearts and growing us to maturity and assurance. So in this last section, let's, cons- let's examine this truth right, that we're supposed to be presented as mature. We're supposed to have encouraged hearts through this fellowship, and we are supposed to have assurance that we know the will of the Lord by studying his word. So that sort of confident, mature Christian, let's look at this truth in light of the gospel. How does the gospel actually impact that? It's important that we tie it back to it. So we've said this a few times, but as we close out the book of Colossians, we remember the primary reason for the epistle, which was to counter heretical and worldly teachings that had crept into the church, that were promoting asceticism and rule following to gain assurance of salvation. 
And as Christians, we do need to be careful about where our assurances lie, right? We've said before, this, this kind of fellowship and unity and maturity only comes from Christ. This can only be found if your sins are forgiven. But we do need to be careful about where our assurances lie. There are all sorts of half-truths about the forgiveness of sins and how we can be sure that our sins are actually forgiven. The reason they creep into the church, I think, is pretty simple. It's, it's because they're mostly true with a little extra legalism thrown on top. The law of God is like a divine schoolmaster, and it shows us where we got the answer wrong. It does not save, but it condemns. We need a righteousness outside of ourselves to come and save us. That righteousness is the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate. The yardstick of legalism is something that we manufacture ourselves, and we think that if we can wrap our knuckles hard enough, we'll know that Jesus' blood plus this extra obedience is surely enough to save. But we have to reject all of that. The forgiveness of sins comes through Christ alone, and assurance of salvation is through faith alone, by grace alone, as found in God's Word alone. If you're here today and that doesn't sound quite right to you, if this gospel isn't the same one that you remember, then please listen closely. For those not trusting in Christ, the scriptures are quite clear about your status. The schoolmaster of the law has pronounced judgment, and you haven't gotten any answers right. The bones have no life in them. There isn't anyone righteous, not even one. This kind of penalty is only paid in blood, and blood has been a requirement for payment for sin by God's holy law since it was passed down at Sinai. To have real forgiveness of sins, the kind that lasts forever, and not just one week or one year or until you sin again, you need a perpetual sacrifice. You need a mediator that won't ever stop advocating for you, advocating for you. You'd need a blood supply that was so good it only had to be poured out once and it would keep flowing forever. You would have to die and come back to life to prove you had that kind of authority. If you're here and this is starting to get uncomfortable, then please hear the good news. Christ has died and risen. He has paid for our sins of legalism, of lust, and more. It's actually what this whole service is about. We're reminding ourselves of the gospel and recommitting ourselves to living like people whose sins were really forgiven. People go to seminary for years to study ministry, and rightly so, but what we're doing is actually not that complicated. Difficult, yes, but the goal is quite simple. Make the manifold wisdom of God known by preaching and believing the gospel and discipling the nations. All of the things we've said and read and sang this morning actually don't make much sense if Christ hadn't died and rose again. The unity and the fellowship that we've seen here, we share it with each other. It would completely cease to exist if we didn't have the gospel message. We'd have no standard. We'd have very few interests and commonalities to align around. Slaves and masters would go back to a class hierarchy. The rich man would go back to his castle and the poor man would go back to his shack. The Jew and the Gentile would stop seeing each other. The young folks don't hang out with the older folks anymore. But salvation belongs to our God, and it's kept for us by Christ himself. It's the perfect love of God demonstrated toward us in Christ that gives us the kind of fellowship and unity that Paul talks about here, the one that's in display in the early church. Our gospel community is made possible by the love of God, which enables us to love each other. We're reconciled to God when he is both the just and the justifier, meaning that he forgives us in Christ out of his love for Christ, and therefore us, his chosen people. The type of unity we have is not made possible by our love for each other, 
Rather, the love we have for each other fosters our unity and fellowship, and it's made possible by the love of God manifested in Christ on the cross. Epaphras struggled on behalf of the church in his prayers because Christ had struggled on his behalf for his sins. Paul's imprisonment and sufferings encouraged the church because Christ had first suffered for Paul. The kind of sacrificial love is what makes it possible for us to do the same. Paul's last commandment to them is, remember my chains, which is a call to the Colossian church to, one, you know, submit to his instructions as the words of God, but also be encouraged. He's working on their behalf that they may reach maturity and have assurance of faith by understanding and guarding the gospel. Again, we ought to have, ought to have a similar reaction baked into our hearts when we hear about our fellow gospel partners and churches that are toiling in the ministry of the world. We also think it's, I think it's appropriate to direct some of that principle inward to the body of CRC. God has given us shepherds and elders who are workers for our joy, and we're to submit to them as they endeavor to lead and feed the church. The exhortation here is to pray for them earnestly, be encouraged by their tireless labor in teaching, caring, discipleship, and also to imitate Tychicus and Epaphras by joining with them in prayer and ministry wherever possible. As a last word, Grace is both the greeting and the closing of Colossians, signifying that this is only possible by the grace of God. As a church, let us be encouraged by the gospel work we see around us, and let us encourage one another by joining in the work of ministry, striving towards maturity as we attain the knowledge of God through the study of his word. May we always remember that salvation belongs to our God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the fellowship and the unity that we enjoy through Christ Jesus. We praise you that you have given us new identities in Christ, that you have given us new hearts, that you have replaced our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, that you have given us workers for our joy, much like Paul and his team were for the church in Colossia. Thank you that we can look to them and be encouraged, that we can participate in our ministry ourselves and be encouraged and be an encouragement to others. Lord, help us to imbibe the truth that we've seen here. Help us to be confident in our study of your word, knowing that when we obey and we know your word, we can have assurance that we are in the will of the Lord. Lord, help transform our minds Help us be more like Christ. Help us reform our thinking where it needs to be so that we are glorifying you with not only our actions, but our thoughts and our hearts as well. It's in Christ's name we pray, and amen.
You can have a seat for just a minute as we go through just a few quick announcements. But uh, what a more fitting man than Andrew Babb, who's been here from the beginning when we planted this church to get up and deliver a sermon like that of 
church and Christianity is a team effort. And God says, oh, you don't have a lead pastor right now? That's okay. We have five or six guys in the church that can get up here behind the pulpit and fill it so well. And you don't have a music guy this Sunday? That's okay. We have another guy that can fill in and lead music. And we have a guy that runs sound that can come up here and sing with him. And just the team aspect of what this is, that's exactly what is being uh, taught here, that Christianity is not easy. Uh, this takes a team. And you'll walk through a lot of suffering and hardship and trials as we have as a church plant. And I remember reading a book with Jordan Stone when we were coming to plant this church of church planting isn't for wimps. And I remember reading that thinking like, well, this sounds exciting and fun. And that book kind of walks through, here's why ministry is difficult. And you're going to hit a lot of bumps in the roads and there's going to be a lot of obstacles that you'll face. But you keep going and you strive and you endure. And God says we can rejoice in our suffering. We can rejoice in our trials when they come. Because he's always there. He's always faithful. And he's holding us. He's holding us fast. That's true of us as a church body, as individuals and Christians. But I just want to thank you so much, Bab. What an amazing sermon. A few announcements before that. If you're guests visiting our church, just want to say this is an amazing church full of amazing people uh, that want to honor God with everything in them and uh, an excellent team and just what was preached today. If you're a guest visiting, we'd love to get to know you. If you have any questions about the church, we want to sit down with you and answer any of those questions. We have a gift bag for you on the way out the doors. Please grab one of those if someone doesn't get to you with one. But we'd love to sit down and just tell you about our church and uh, what God is doing with this body. And um, a few, there's a gospel book in there that's amazing of what is the gospel and just a few little gifts in there for you. So thank you so much for coming. Reach out to us with the email there at the bottom of the gathering guide or you can scan that QR code just down at the bottom uh, to get connected with us and uh, we'll fill you in just more about our church. We do have a family meeting today. That'll happen right after service. So we'll just hang out in here. You can go get uh, your kids, the young kids, one to three-year-olds and three to five-year-olds, six to 11-year-olds. They'll be escorted back up uh, after they get done with choir practice. They're running through choir song. That will happen on Palm Sunday. And that, just to clarify here, I know I've been putting it in the emails, but Palm Sunday service happens here at MCA as usual. And then we'll have our 10 year anniversary celebration as a church out at the church property that evening. So it'll start at 4 p.m. And the kids are gonna sing at that, uh, that 4 p.m. And we'll be there till dusk, till whenever it gets dark. And then the following Sunday, Easter Sunday, our service will also be here at MCA in the gym. And the kids are gonna sing here also for Easter Sunday, uh, the choir pieces that they've been working on. Um, youth happens today. Uh, notice the time change because of family meeting. Youth will start at one o'clock and go from 1 to 2.30. And then just an update on youth, uh, talking with Derek Nimmers and Chad. We're going to shift the youth time going forward. So starting next month, we don't have youth next Sunday because it's the last Sunday of the month. But starting next month, youth time will now be 12.30 to 2.30. Our youth has actually jumped in to help with all teardown here after service gets over. So uh, they're just allowing for time for that. And then they get out to the church house. They'll start at 12.30 to 2.30. I'll put that in the emails, though, too. Men's ministry happens this Tuesday. Details are there. Uh, second half of part three and four, Thoughts for Young Men, we're walking through on the booklet. Men's retreat happens on the 31st uh, through April 1st. So if you haven't signed up for that, I would encourage you to. We'll give more details at the family meeting. But uh, theme is biblical responsibilities for men. So we'll be looking at three sessions, specifically responsibilities of a faithful disciple, a faithful family head, and a faithful church member. But it's going to be a great time. It always has been every year. But if you're a man and you haven't signed up for that, I would couldn't encourage you more to come and hang out. It's going to be a fun time. 
And then one quick last thing. If you can help us with Teardown after family meeting, that would be great, as always. Uh, if you have five to ten minutes to stick around and help uh, tear down chairs and pipe and drape and get all this uh, loaded up, that would be awesome. But if you'd stand to your feet for our benediction. It comes from Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. And it says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Awesome. We'll all reconvene in about five to ten minutes and get family meeting started in here if you're a member of CRC. Have a blessed afternoon.